0: Chasing the Ghost Light, a podcast where I ask writers about the singular moments and stories that haunt them artistically. This podcast is presented in association with Three Girls Theater, a San Francisco-based theater company dedicated to developing, presenting, and promoting new work by women writers. This week, Susan Jackson is on the pod. Susan is a playwright, actor, and a former professor, and on this episode, she talks about growing up as a preacher's daughter in North Carolina and how this influences her writing. Susan is interested in moral crossroads, and on this episode, we talk about some real-life morally gray situations that she's been in, and also some fictional ones, including her play Samaritan, which was a finalist in the Salon series at 3GT. We also discuss her play Skyping God, in which a woman on the brink of foreclosure is visited by a televangelist. So thank you so much for hopping on the pod. So I know that your play Skyping God was chosen by the Red Curtain Theater Festival um, as a global finalist. So congratulations thank on you. that. Thank you. How do you describe this play?
1: Well, it it came about actually uh, as a result of the two thousand eight two thousand nine financial crisis, where people were dealing with what they called short term short term sales. And also at that time, as there is now, people were dealing with their loved ones being sent off to various wars. So those two things uh, Im- impacted me in terms of that reality. But also, Pastor Joel austin I don't know how to pronounce his name, is a real character. He's a real televangelist, as you know. And I hate him. I hate him with all my heart. And I'm pretty much, I-, I think, you know, I'm the daughter of a minister, so I have that right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's your birthright, basically.
1: (laughs) Um, I I hate the fact that people are suffering during that time and now, and the televangelists take advantage of that. And even, and I actually, some of the quotes that he says are actually from his mouth. So that those things were kind of uh, praying, so to speak, uh in my head, and The other thing that I get worked up about is the idea of the patriarchal system of religions, organized religions. And I can say that, again, being the daughter of a minister, and my father was indeed a patriarchal leader of the church. My mother, um, way back in the 60s, 70s, my mother thought that God was a woman. Well, she, my mother thought that God was not a father, and she hated all the patriarchal stuff. And she would secretly sing the hymns, and she would substitute he for she. And this was way back before anybody dared to yeah so that idea as well of of God being matriarchal rather than patriarchal is also part of my thought process in fact I don't say amen I say ah women
0: <laughs> I know that's stupid totally <laughs> I've stupid. never heard that but that's that's really interesting
1: <laughs> well yeah I kind of just said well because I, I, I like I like the word amen because you know when you say it, it usually it's usually an affirmative amen but I just I think it's better if you just said ah women you know you yeah. get that covered you cover everything so those things were on my mind and I can't remember when I went to South Africa I think it was about that time that I had a I had a life a life change I. I, I went from being a seeker of uh, authenticity of religions and God and so on to a, dis, a non-believer as a result of mm-hmm. going to South Africa. And that may have been the same time that I wrote Skyping God. I'd have, to, I'd have to check on that, but that seems about right.
0: Was there a particular moment that caused that shift in that trip? Yes, uh,
1: the townships. The mm-hmm. townships, which are, have been featured in the movie um, Invictus, and in the movie, it's a science fiction movie. I can't remember it District, District 47 or something like that was the sci-fi movie. And when you when you see the townships that people live in, and there's miles and miles and miles of them along the road, unless you are uh, unless you are completely heartless, you can't look at that kind of po- poverty and not respond to it even mm-hmm. now. And when I saw that, And then I, I um, experienced some of the culture of South Africa, some of the people, um, their devotion to religion, Um, they would, some of them, we would see as we passed villages, we would see some of the women beautifully uh, attired in their matching colors and hats, and they would walk seven or eight miles to church in one direction in return and I met some of the people who worked where we were and they told me what their lives were like and their devotion to God and to each other and to their work and it just it just kind of you know um, kind of made me think that they're even, even though I respect their devotion to religion and I have the utmost admiration for them it kind of amplified for me that it was pretty much religions were pretty much set up to control people, and particularly, if I might be so general, women and children, particularly women. And so that all kind of came about, um, because I also think, I know that religions can be very helpful to people. I know that people find a lot of comfort and joy, and, and I did too at one time, but I also see how they utilize that power to control people and to uh, make people behave a certain way. And, um, and then I just th- kind of thought it would be kind of fun if, um, you know, you're, you're getting ready to give money to somebody and, and then God appears and, uh, what do you do with it? You know, um, mm. when, cause we're all, I think a lot of people think they see God, certainly the televangelists mm. act like God's their best friend, the way they talk about God talked to me and told me this, I like, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, gee, I wish you know. I wish God would sit down with me. And then there's that great song, you know, "What if God was one of us?" So, so that whole spiritual religious journey, I guess, continued uh, for me um, in in the story, Skyping God, even though I, I no longer believe in, in that in God as as He or She is presented in the uh, Christian world. But um, I just thought it'd be kind of cool if you know mm-hmm. God i think secretly even if we don't believe we all it, it well we would all like god to sort of appear to us and go hey you know
0: <laughs> by the way like i could like really help you in this situation and like even though i think first like what you said about you know religion being used to control women and children specifically is really interesting given the context of the play because it is about a working mother whose husband's in Iraq, who's on like the edge of foreclosure. And while she's skeptical, it really makes, it seems really rational. And there's that moment in the play where he's like, you take that acorn and you dig that hole and you plant it and you tend to it and you cover it up during heavy storms. That seed will grow into the oak tree that God intends for you to have. And I think like, first of all, like the the breath support needed for televangelists is very impressive on its own, but also like, I can totally see how, even though it is financially questionable, that really would seem like a very logical choice yes. to latch on to that. Yes. And, and you, yes.
1: And, and you want to lat, latch on to hope. I mean, sometimes that's, that's all you have. And you, you want to believe, you know, this is such a good question be, because, um, Um, I I often wonder if people are intentionally or, um, good at heart Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and, or, or if, if we are intent or maybe unintentionally, maybe that's what I need. Um, you know, you know, when, when we are and this, these are what I write plays about when we are at that road, you know, will we, will we go in the direction of goodness or will we go in the direction of, of non-goodness, um. Mm -hmm. And so you want, you want Tracy to go in the direction of goodness, but the opportunity that she's offered is through the, in my opinion, from the eyes of evil, which is so, but you also understand her desperation and her desire to provide for her family. Um, So it's the, it's the complexity of that. And that's why... Mm -hmm. When I was in South Africa, it was the complexity of, of lives. What appeared to be a simple thing was really quite extraordinary.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think sometimes Americans want to simplify everything we, um, uh, you, uh, and, and, and say everything happens for a reason. And I think when you do that, you, you diminish the experience and you dismiss
0: the multitude of complexities that are out there. I think what you say about, you know, like things happening, to say that everything happens for a reason is such like a blanket statement that's kind of like hard to respond to in a way. Um, And I know that you mentioned that you've kind of distanced yourself from the church or religion a little bit. But I'm wondering if there are any stories, any biblical stories growing up that have really sort of stayed with you and informed your writing. We always had Christmas Eve at the church. I loved Christmas Eve because mm-hmm. I knew all the
1: songs, all the all the song Christmas songs. And I knew the origin of the songs because my father would tell the story of how Silent Night got created and uh, Joy to the World and so on. And I used to love to sing them. And mm-hmm. um, I knew them all. I could sing harmony. Um, and I remember every single time we'd have Christmas, and we'd have candlelight service. So when we sang Silent Night, We'd all light candles, which was pretty powerful, uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I remember I cried every single year, as an as a child, as a young adult, as a teenager. Every time we had Christmas Eve uh, candlelight service, I'd cry, and I couldn't figure out why uh, I would cry. Um, and I think I think I realized. When I went to South Africa, although it took a while to make the connection, I think I was crying because I knew that somewhere that reality, that beauty was temporal and um, based on a um, perhaps not, you know, a philosophy that I would invariably embrace, inevitably, inevitably embrace. And I, I, I thought that I thought, you know, I don't know. You can't go back in time and say, "Well, I I must have thought this," but I think yeah. there was some sorrow there, along with the incredible joy of the singing and stuff. I think there was a, an innate sense. At at one point, I would part ways with that, um, with that ritual or that, that ritual. sort of belief. Both,
0: mm-hmm. both
1: the ritual that was so powerful for me and that I loved so much. I think that there was an always an inherent sadness to it, and it mm. not. Yeah, um, and my father was a, was of the New Testament. He didn't, you know, he didn't go into the whole gory Old Testament. Um, he was he was really a, a more interested in, in the life of Jesus than he was in destroying, uh, you know, the Tower of Babel or whatever. So so I grew up with a more liberal and New Testament perspective, but it was still you know patriarchal and it still presented things that people say this is the way it is because Mark. 14 says blah, 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 blah.
0: I can totally see how do experiencing that ritual um, throughout your life would lead you to realize that, like, mm. those incredible moments do come to an end. And I know that you've said that one of the best advice that you've ever received is to write a play in which there's a ritual and an explosion in the ritual. And I guess, you know, in like thinking narratively in your work, um, to what degree do you think about ritual as a whole?
1: Well, um, I'm just making a note here. Um, I've been married three times, and the first time mm-hmm. the ritual was was ex- pr- was exactly as my father wanted. It was a Christian wedding with biblical co- quotes and um, uh, I can't even remember. I probably we sang a couple of hymns. So the ritual was strong and Christian. The mm-hmm. second time I got married, um, it was slightly different, but still, with the, we got well. We got married in a church, and my mother was with us. And um, I don't think we'd written our own vows. Um, I, I, but we said our own vows. It was slightly less Christian and more interactive. Let's put it that way. And my mm-hmm. third wedding. Which was on the beach in North Carolina. Um, uh, the minister, which we, you, when you buy this wedding package, you get the minister, but you have to you have to interview the minister and you have to interview each other, which makes sense. And he said to me, he said, "Susan, is there anybody you'd like for me to include in the uh, comments?" I said, "Yes, name these people because they can't be at the wedding." And then he said, "Is there anything you don't want me to include?" And I said, "Yes, don't mention God." <laughs> Really because, because my parents are both deceased, they weren't going to be at the wedding, and I didn't want God or Jesus or Bible nothing,
0: nothing <laughs> mentioned. Like because there is freedom if they don't see it, it didn't happen technically. And he, bless his heart, he wore a Hawaiian
1: shirt, and he never brought up religion at all. And I was so happy. And so um, that ritual of getting married to appease my parents finally went out the window. Mm -hmm. And even if they had been alive, I still would have done the wedding the way it happened. I, you know, I still, I would have said to them, okay, mom and dad, God is not, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So that, that ritual of, of marriage, wedding, wedding vows, and we may now kiss the bride and all that other crap went, went, went south, and that was fine. And then, mm-hmm. Ritual as a whole, in my writing, well, I think I may have mentioned that it, it, my plays are are usually about a person facing a crisis of conscience. I mean, mm-hmm. most plays are anyway, let's not, let's get real here. Um, and I didn't write them with that intention, but these crises of conscience are usually pretty big. They're not like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: should I use this or should I wear that? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And I I think that's pretty much... um, And and I I think that's probably very much affected by my upbringing. Um, But, and again, it's it's dealing with the complexity of the answer. It's never a clear road... um, for example, at the end of Streetcar Named Desire, uh, uh, warning spoiler alert, and the mm-hmm. version that, that Tennessee Williams wrote, you didn't know what happened uh, at the end of the play. When when Stanley is, is trying to love uh, Stella and she's standing there, you don't know what she's thinking. Um, you don't know if she's going to stay or leave. The feeling is probably she's going to stay. Whereas in the movie, Uh, she left. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, sorry, because Hollywood wanted a happy ending. But I happen to think along with Tennessee Williams and the same way with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, um, Maggie says, you know, Brick, I love you. And he says, wouldn't it be funny if it were true? What a great ending.
0: Wouldn't it be funny if it were true?
1: Um, So I don't think the the plays that I write in in terms of of rituals um, uh, are... crisis of conscience, if you will, that there is a clear cut answer, that a ritual will not provide the comfort that they need.
0: I know that in, you know, in Samaritan, which is, you know, set in the not too distant future in which climbing mountains is like en vogue in America, and Renata's trying to find the stranger who left her husband, Greg, to die on a climb to Mount Everest, There. You know, I was talking to my dad actually about the play, and like he—he's a mountain climber, and he's like, "Yeah, like my friends and I, like we love each other, but we like fully expect that you know, if push comes to shove, like we might have to leave each other on the mountain." And I love what you say about things, you know, not being clear cut. Um, I was wondering, in writing this play, if you were, you know, on Mount Everest, like would you leave someone? and like in writing the play did you did your moral views change at all well it was actually based on a true story
1: that i heard on npr and when i heard the story and the guy lived the guy lived uh, uh, they did actually come back down saw that he had Mm -hmm. moved and they they put they brought him down Mm -hmm. he doesn't know who it was who stared at him and walked on by so yes Mm -hmm. um That is a very compelling play to me in the sense of the the theme of what would you do if you were faced with someone who needed you? Could Mm -hmm. you, you you know, I mean, not to trivialize it, but there are people on the streets who need some assistance. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when do we make a decision to try to do something? Uh, What can we do? Um, not because I'm a a good Samaritan because I'm pretty much a coward, but I saw an event outside this window here where it looked like Mm. a guy was getting ready to explode and there was someone in the car I suspected was a woman. So I called the police. Mm. Now, remember that I'm far enough away from that so that he can't see me and nothing's going to happen to me. So my Mm. calling the police was really a safe. And yet, yep, the police came, they caught him. I had to identify him and he he was on parole for a um, violence. So I'm glad I did that. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm not, you know, uh, other times, you know, who knows? And, and, and so it, it, you know, what does it mean to be good? Um, and I don't know. I mean, if I were on the top of Mount Everest and I paid $50 million and, Uh, you know, I had a a slim opportunity and I thought the person was either going to die anyway. I mean, who knows? I, I I don't even want to put myself Mm. in that position. Um, because, uh, my friend Diana Brown and I, we, we were, um, this is weird, but we were having tea at Pacific catch in, uh, the hate and, um, we saw a young woman outside the door who looked very distressed. Now, you know, everybody in the Hague kind of looks dist- distressed. So it's a fair assessment there. <laughs> for, yeah. for various reasons. And yeah, something about her was just, she just was in anguish. And I said to Diana, I said, we got to go out there. So we went out there. And sure enough, she had just arrived here from San Francisco. And someone, she'd left her money on the bus, her cash for rent. So we brought mm-hmm. her in and... Diana made a bunch of phone calls we got Muni on and she was able to go to Muni and get her money back,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was miraculous. But uh, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know. Why did that happen? Why did we look out the window and see her and see that her face was not like anybody else's? So I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to take any credit for anything. Cause like I said, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much a coward. Um, or if I see there's a, <laughs> I, I turn another corner. Um, So, but I I do think that on many levels, people struggle with that, Um, you know, what's the right thing to do? I mean, gosh, if you have aging parents, what's the right thing to do? And um, if you have an animal that's in pain and anguish, you know, what's, I I, I do think that on many levels, people deal with these crises of conscience and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what? how do you know what the right decision is? Now, for, for some people, it's their religion that tells them the right thing to do.
0: What's really interesting about the story itself is that there's a multitude of ways in which it can be interpreted, you know, in terms of like, you know, like wanting to blame Renata for like leaving her husband and sort of, you know, going on this mission for her own self self gain and really being like a personal mission. And I know that you've described a time in which you were working on a play, and there was an audience member or someone who thought that a well-meaning doctor was actually a sociopath, which is hilarious. And I'm wondering, like, what that experience was like.
1: Well, it was a, it was at the um, Mid Midwestern Theater Conference, um, so mm-hmm. it was basically educators there, and th- the theme was um, I forget the theme, but. So I just submitted a play called Happy Baby, which was about a young mm-hmm. woman who was in a, uh, a, a, special, a special place for um, adolescents who were having problems. Uh, her mother had placed her there, um, so that obviously there was some money involved. And the doctor had created this therapy where you rewrite your history,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you erase the bad things and you rewrite your history in a positive way. And so it was kind of loopy. Um, mm-hmm. But the guy, for some reason, um, he came across, and the actor was app- was appalled. He came across as being sort of, um, uh, what's the word when you're trying to get into somebody's, um, can't think of the word, uh, scary. Well, he came across to mm-hmm. a little scary, like, now, now, let's do, remember, we do it this way, we do it uh-huh. that way. And I meant it to be kind of a, a, a joke—a a joke on the therapeutic pres- choices that people make sometimes. I think are a little, little, uh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, you know, there, you know, it's, it made sense to a certain extent. You know, instead of dwelling on the past, why don't you re- recreate a past that, that's positive? And, and the mother shows up, and we see why the daughter is the way she is because the mother is pretty wretched. But for some reason, instead of come across as being loving and caring, he came across as being scary. And several people said that. They said, well, we thought he was a sociopath. And and, and I looked at the actor, and he looked at me, and, he's, and he said, that's not what we intended. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, you know, there's no way that they can get... And, and this is the interesting thing about when people have reactions like that. When you dig that hole... A lot of times other people will jump in because they go, oh, yeah. So you've made the mention, oh, no, that he wasn't being paternal. He was a sociopath. So so it's like all of a sudden the crowd kind of went, yeah, he was a sociopath. And I'm going, Your path. oh, no, we've jumped in that hole. We've jumped in that hole. Yeah.
0: It's like uh, once you start picking up the hole, it just kind of like opens up and everyone's like, jumping in um i can see that being as a writer like being kind of stressful because like you know that's a big it really shifts like the the core of the whole play so i'm wondering you know in your writing process as a whole are you worried about being misinterpreted i am now <laughs> was it because uh, of that or
1: yeah and a couple of times well the interesting the character of renata has gotten a lot of feedback from people a lot, and it's it's been rather perturbing to me because uh, people have said you know well she's a bitch and I don't like her and and I'm, I'm I'm thinking they don't yes I can understand that as a surface response but I also want them to get it into the what is she and without her you know, and, and people have said I need to kind of soften her up and I'm going don't you know how, how much do you get how much do you need to get that she she has lost her husband? Mm-hmm. She has lost her child and she wants to move forward. And why shouldn't she? And yeah, we look at that as a society and go, oh, but you're not maternal. And, you know, you need to stay. But in her mind, you know, it's her time now. It's her time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that she, she should leave her family. You know, you have a sick child. How do you but he's gonna he's gonna disappear. He's gonna eventually disappear and die. So that sounds pretty cruel. But I'm I'm I am worried about that. I am worried that people will not get the three dimensionality of her. I've added a couple of lines to show her anguish. But but she's she's on this. You know, she stuck by. She took care of things. She as as she, as a, someone once said, "I did my time." My husband, my first husband, mm. said that to me. When he asked before a divorce, he said, I've done my time. <laughs> oh my God. And I went, oh, so that's what this was all about. But in her mind, she has um, she's ready to go on. And, and I kind of would like I don't want people to just not like her and just bash her and just say, well, she doesn't deserve a happy life or. So, yeah, I do worry about that. I don't want people to dislike her. Because mm-hmm. I think her actions are based on a, a real experience of hers. I hear what people say. I still have people giving me a lot of comments. I'm still absorbing mm-hmm. them. And I try to see if I can modify things in a way that will clarify or, in this case, soften Renata in a way that, that she would she would say. So, in other words, I don't mind altering things if I feel like it's the truth of the character versus my truth. hmm I mean, Renata's is not going to stay with her husband. That's not the ending
0: that's going to happen. Interesting. Even though this is, you know, about largely on like a broad level about sort of like the moral kind of terror of, you know, someone's husband being left, it really is about like their marriage itself. Exactly. And I know that you've described your writing process as one in which like characters speak to you. And I was also wondering, aside from the, the story itself with Guy being left on Mount Everest, to what degree was this fictional versus non-fictional?
1: Well, the story is based on this guy's experience that I heard on NPR, which I have not been able to find. I've Googled and tried to find it, but it was a while ago. But his, mm-hmm. uh, his story was pretty accurate, that he was left up mm-hmm. there, that they left him because they thought he was dead. And then some stranger came by. Now, remember, he's, you know, he's half out of it. But what he remembers is someone coming and checking to see, you know, what was going on and him indicating that he was in in, in stress and then the person walking away. Now, again, he was in a state, so who knows? But that's what he remembers. And then he knows that they came back and they brought him back down and he did lose fingers and toes. Now, they had not, Mm -hmm. his wife did not know that, that they had left him behind. That was, that's fictional. You know, she just found out. But a lot of it was researched in terms of what do the Sherpas do? What is the policy? And as as your father knows, in terms of the greater good, there Mm. is that window of time that you can go up to the the top and and you have to do it. You can't. There were also earthquakes. So so a lot of it was researched. And the story is based on this interview with this gentleman. But after that, you know, how his wife responded and, and exploring the character of Alan, that's all in my head. There's a lot of fictional stuff in it, but I also had a lot of, uh, I made sure I supported it, so if anybody like your father, who I'd be interested in seeing it, were to see it, he'd go, yes, that's right, that's what Mm -hmm. happens, you can suffer, and I think the the words I used that describe the ailments that you get, hypnothermia, whatever they are, are accurate, I think, I think,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what happens to your body and stuff, although in this case, he loses his face, and Mm -hmm. this guy, this guy just lost part of his nose. But I Mm -hmm. liked the idea of having his face, he lost his face, you know, and so he has to have a new face. So that's, that's fictional.
0: And also it would be like to be, you know, in a marriage and to sort of, to see that sort of reminder, essentially for forever, if you were staying together. Exactly. It's not her husband anymore. On many
1: levels, it's not her husband anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't make it to the top. And then he has a different face and he's he's a house husband now. He's kind of stepped back from being the man of the family and everything, you know. So, yeah. So she's kind of lost him in her mind.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What interested you about scaffolding, you know, this true story within the structure of a marriage?
1: I think I thought I always think of the person that you don't hear about. Like, I think I told mm-hmm. you I wrote the story of the child molester at Penn, yeah, you know, the story that the child molester at Penn State, and I wrote it from the perspective of the wife. I'm always interested in what the other person that you never hear about, what their response is. So the first thing I thought of when I heard the story was his wife, because mm-hmm. he did mention he was married. I thought, well, what must it be like for her? And then, well, wh- what about the person who walked by? What's his story? I'm more interested in the, the, vi- the victim. The wife—it's mm-hmm. the exterior people, it's the shadow people—that are intriguing
0: to me. Mm. It, yeah, still the the pattern of like you know the wife who's like overseeing all the all the shit just hit the fan. Yeah, right, right. For lack of better phrasing, but
1: and I, that yeah. may be from and I just had this thought. It may be because in my in my parents' marriage, they were married for fifty-two years. My father was always the center of attention. He was the minister. He was the center of attention. And being a minister's wife is very demanding, and she also had a job, and she raised us kids. And I I, I often thought she was rather unsung. Mm-hmm. I mean, people occasionally she would speak, and she was a very good speaker. Um, and she, she got her master's degree in her 50s, but I think she was kind of unsung and unappreciated. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So Maybe that's what that all came from. Who knows? Is is it the person that you know, you don't really hear about or see about? You know, we can always write about the king or the queen, but it's the um, servants or the spouses or whatever that are carried the, know the real story, so to speak.
0: You know, the one who isn't whose perspective might really alter the sort of like the dominant story of what people kind of perceive. And I kind of love that as like a a broader, like it's almost like a mythic story of, you know, the wife who is who's watching and observing and who sees more than everyone else. And I know that you, you know, a lot of your work is like largely fiction. And I'm wondering if there are any stories from your own life that have haunted you that you've sort of channeled into plays.
1: Well, yeah, my, the first play that I wrote about my mother was almost verbatim what happened to her. It's called "Blessing Her Heart," the monologue. That was all her story. When she was in de- her decline, I re- kept a diary of all the things that happened because it was so in- <laughs> outlandish. And um, that was, and I, I told you that my father was killed in a, by a train, and that that's in that as well. Uh, so that was
0: pure um, nonfiction. I'm wondering, you know, throughout your experience, you know, writing about these, about the aftermath of grief, has your relationship to grief as a whole changed?
1: Well, I, I think about, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's changed. I mean, I, I think I'm more sympathetic, perhaps, I hope, towards people who hmm. are grieving, because I think it manifests itself in many levels. I mean, when my father died... It was shock. That was mostly what was happening, was shock. Uh, and I had to take over all the responsibilities and everything. And I don't think I ever actually properly, properly, unquote, unquote cried for his death. But what happened was it, I put that into a play about my mother. And when my mother died, I was with her, well, I, the night before I was with her. And she was 87, and she was she had was in a coma, and so that kind of grief was something else than my father's grief, and so I, I have a huge respect for it. I, I don't think you should ever diminish a person's grief. I think, I don't think it's changed my perspective. I think it's just hopefully made me more sensitive, and 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 I that's interesting that I hadn't realized I'd written all these plays about catastrophic events. But I think the idea—not to
0: pigeonhole you.
1: (laughs) No, no, I think it's kind of well. It's again, it's that idea of crossroads. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think probably grief forms us more than joy. Sadly, you know, what you remember is what you didn't get for Christmas instead of what you did get. So, so I think that grief and all those elements related to grief, I think that's what formulates who we are and how we deal with it. I've known people who've gone through incredible childhoods. I think I may have told you the story. I was with some students and we were all at a Chinese restaurant and I was pretty much fresh out of Tennessee. And so I went around and I said, I'd like to know a little bit about you. We, I just cast them in a play. I said, tell me a little bit about you. So they all went around the table and each one of them had a story that broke your heart. And mm-hmm. i this is like the first time in the South you don't do that. But here everybody's, t- I just found out my father's not my father. And I'm like, you know, and then so it got to me and I said, well, I feel bad, but I had a pretty happy childhood. <laughs> you know? yeah. and I did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, when people tell me the, the grueling experiences they had as children and as young adults, it breaks my heart because I, I think, wow, I'm never going to complain about not getting candy for Easter ever again. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good, a good point. Um, the last thing that I wanted to touch on is... So I know that you're working on the sins and secrets of Tabard Lake with Three Girls Theater, in which a playwright invites six people to a writer's retreat, all of which are guilty of one of the, de- the seven deadly sins against her. And I know that everyone involved got to choose the sin that they wrote about, so i I'm just wondering what what intrigues you about writing about lust. Well, because I'm a minister's
1: kid, I can go. You know, I can either be the devil or I can be the angel, and I liked. I'd rather write about something that's the. You know, of course, they're all they're all what, what they're all the the bad parts about people anyway. The seven deadly sins or whatever. So, but I just thought I tend to be. Sometimes I think I, I tend to uh, not wanting to, not I tend to be kind of a prude. So um, I thought, let's just go for it. Let's just, let's just, you know, who cares? Um, and so I, I thought, well, that would be fun, jealous, and um, and and really not something that I'm comfortable with or familiar with to a certain extent. By that I mean, I mean I lust after George Clooney, but that's kind of the extent of it. So I thought it would be a challenge. It was, uh, I didn't have to worry about answering those questions. What is your character's objective? Basically, it was, you know, make sure you include these characters, make sure you include this, and then go for it. So I found it fun, challenging, but not in a bad way. And, and the other thing was, I, I, tell, I used to tell my playwriting students, every play is a mystery. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's written in the mystery genre. But every play is a mystery. You have people who are covering things up. You have people who are lying. You have people who've committed sins. You have, there have been little deaths, you know, there have been little Mm -hmm. murders. And at the end, the audience wants to know, quote unquote, who did it or what happened. And so it was kind of fun to actually write a mystery because I've never, I don't think I've ever written a mystery, but I love them. I I love, I love mysteries. Um, Whatever. You know, however they ex- uh, express themselves—detective stories or uh, soap operas, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was a lot of fun and painless. It, well, as as it, about as painless as you can get uh, in terms mm-hmm. of deadlines and stuff. But really, it was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I can't wait yes. to see it.
0: So thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh the sins and secrets will be coming out in april and your play skyping god will be shown march 21st so yeah thank you for for coming on
1: well you're great hannah thank you
0: very much thanks yeah it's been good
1: bye-bye take care
0: bye Thank you for listening this has been chasing the ghost light the sins and secrets of tabard lake will be available starting april 1st at wherever you get your pods on the next episode of chasing the ghost light i will be interviewing christy lynn Baloney. if you enjoyed this episode please rate share Write comments out uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Chasing the Ghost Light is edited and produced by Nicholas Angleton. Our music is from the band Thrown Out Bones. And this podcast is presented in association with Three Girls Theater.